Hey, hey, peeps, this is absolutely exciting. We have done it. We have made it through to the end of season three <laughs> on promoting alternative proteins. This is the final episode. And right now I'm looking at a 32 page summary that our team member Katie Collier has made, summarizing over seven and a half hours of content on the communication aspects, the branding, the future of cellular agriculture. I'm sitting here on a surprisingly sunny afternoon in Berlin with a decaf coffee, and I will go with you through some of the most interesting, insightful and controversial tidbits of the whole season. I know there's a too long didn't read. This is the too long didn't listen version. I know some of you listening in have never listened to Red to Green. Welcome, welcome. We create, you could say, audiobook style podcasts. Our first season has been on cellular agriculture. So how to make real poultry without chicken, cheese without the cow, eggs without hens. This is not plant-based. You can find more about how it's done and why it's done in our first season and especially episodes two and four. So we dialed up the nerdiness and we're going one step further thinking about how do we communicate this? How do we deal with naysayers? How do we deal with regulatory hurdles, with industry lobbyism, etc., etc.? Me and anybody else on the Red to Green team hasn't seen another resource that investigated this topic in so many hours of content with so many diverse views and influences. And so if, if you find one, please send it to me. <laughs> you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Just type in Marina Schmidt and I'm always happy to hear from listeners. This is a season especially for professionals. And if you have colleagues, if you have friends who work in the field, if you know anybody who is a decision maker, this is something we need to think about. So please share it with them because it's important for us to get our brains on these long-term topics. Now let's get to the most interesting quotes and tidbits from this season. Let's jump right in. This is Red to Green. You're listening to season three on promoting alternative proteins. 12 episodes covering consumer acceptance and food psychology of novel foods, like cell-cultured meat and alternative dairy. To receive the best takeaways on food tech and sustainability, subscribe now and sign up to our newsletter at redtogreen.solutions. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Episode two, we had Isha Datar from New Harvest on. And this is a quote that really stuck with me. We are a mission-driven industry today. We, we may not be a mission-driven industry forever, but since we are one today, how can we rally together, create accountability structures for ourselves and make sure that we are actually moving towards a future where we don't need to consume animals for food. And so that that's my big thesis that I wanna put out in this podcast, the real sense of timeliness around this thing. Like it is a hundred percent related to consumer acceptance because mm. consumer acceptance is not just about marketing. It is about transparency and self-governance and accountability. 
To build startups that change the industry not only requires capital, but also the relevant know-how and valuable connections. Check out our partner Atlantic Food Labs, an early stage investor and venture studio for startups. Founded in 2016, the Berlin-based investor is one of Europe's leading venture firms for food and agriculture, investing in exciting topics such as alternative proteins, water supply, vertical farming, solutions for food waste and carbon reduction. Led by the vision to feed 10 billion people by 2050 in a sustainable and healthy way, Atlantic Food Labs has supported over 20 mission-driven founding teams to launch their ideas. For example, they've invested in Legendary, the cultured milk startup featured in our episode 4, making real cheese without cows. Mush Labs, making meat alternatives from fungi, and Gorillas, designing the future of grocery shopping. And now, back to today's episode. You may have heard of this little Oatly scandal that has been going on. Oatly suing Pure Oaty, oat milk drink producer, a small farm that supposedly is infringing Oatly's brand name rights. And it's ironic because Oatly was so proactive in stopping Amendment 171, which we will also talk later about. A lot of companies can start out with great intentions and clearly the industry is very mission-driven. But then as soon as more capital comes in, more and different stakeholders are involved. For example, with Oatly, that's Blackstone Capital, we notice a shift and it's very easy to lose track of values. So how do we make sure that as we scale and we need to have the structures and the support of big corporations, how do we ensure the integrity of what we are doing? What is the first product that will get the most people to try it for the first time. And I think a snack food is an example of something that will really break down the barriers of, Mm. yeah, sure. I mean, I can always buy a pack of chips, eat one or two and throw it away. And I don't, I don't feel invested in it. And then Isha goes on to propose that a great way to get people involved, break down the barriers to trying would be to have snack foods, which can be passed around in a group of friends. And I find that is a fantastic idea. I think we shouldn't put too much pressure on ourselves that we if we don't launch the marketing right, it could all fail. I think worse than that are things like if safety is not correct, it could all fail. If people feel lied to, it could all fail. Very, very important point on the importance of doing good groundwork in terms of safety. Because if there are high expectations and high promises and then things always go sideways at some point. The cellular agriculture industry needs to have a good strategy for how to deal with safety issues, how to deal with concerns of the public. Now to episode two with Chris Bryant, researcher on the consumer perception of cultured meat. Let me introduce you to our partner, NX Food. The hub for the future of food advises established companies and startups. Would you like to validate and scale your food innovation? Do you need help with the implementation of innovation processes? Do you want to find out what the future of food means to your company? Annex Food provides full support 
from proof of concept to proof of market to scale up and has a strong distribution partner network. They can advise you on corporate venturing activities as well as product innovations. Additionally, they offer access to a global food community with exclusive events, knowledge and market insights and deal flow for investment requests. Check out NX Food because the future of food needs to be shaped. But for the more skeptical consumers, they need to see that there's actually a benefit to themselves. So what can cultured meat offer them that meat from animals can't? And there are a couple of ways that companies can go with that. The first, as I mentioned, is to talk about the purity uh, and cleanliness of cultured meat. This was part of the thinking behind the term clean meat, which has kind of come and gone in the industry. But that serves to highlight that Meat produced in this way, unlike meat from animals, doesn't have these pathogens in there, doesn't have traces of antibiotics and other nasty stuff that you get when you when you chop up an animal. Another thing that's discussed in terms of offering consumers like personal tangible benefits is nutritional enhancements. And this is something that a lot of cultured meat producers are considering. And some of the biggest takeaways from this work for the alternative protein space are to be transparent in the developments and the communications. Not to develop the perception that they're being secretive or hiding things from the public. The great benefit of cellular agriculture is that most of the time it's small companies trying to build this. It doesn't come from the corporations. And in particular, you know, we see now many cultured meat companies which are focusing on a specific part of the process. Some companies are kind of specializing in producing cultured fats, for example, only. Others are leaning into developing the bioreactors. And it's suggested that this kind of ecosystem where there are different companies providing different components of products and networks provides a more robust ecosystem overall compared to just a series of vertically integrated companies that are all trying to do everything in-house. Episode three with Jack Abobo. The reason people think things happen and the reason they actually happen can be quite different. That's an important lesson because when Impossible Foods went from being $20 a burger in high-end restaurants and only rich people could afford it to going into 18,000 Burger Kings when poor people could afford it, well, that's the day the pushback happened. It didn't happen when rich people were buying GMO burgers that were ultra-processed. It happened when it actually reached the masses. But that's important to understand that that's the moment, right? When you're trying to go from early adopter and innovator to early majority is the moment of risk because your relationship to the consumer changes. And every company that wants to scale has to bridge that divide. And they have to understand how to position their product, not just for the early adopter, but for a larger audience. So you'll have some alternative protein companies that create the cricket bar, and they put the cricket right there on the package. And they're telling the consumer, you're eating insects. Now consumers have to get over that sense of disgust that insects create for many you know, Western consumers in order to appreciate their product. On the other hand, you have other energy bars like the Jungle Bar, which says insect powered on the label, but it's not really that noticeable. Mm -hmm. And they're giving the consumer permission to eat the product without having to think about the fact that it's made of insects. So they're not lying about it. They're not hiding it, but they're giving you permission to not worry about it. 
And so when we think about how you want to position products in the future, think about what Eat Just is doing with their alternative egg product. They're not trying to convince me to eat yellow peas, and they're not trying to convince me to eat mung beans. They're giving me an egg substitute. So too often, I think we get hung up on our own technology and our own innovation, and that's often not the thing that's going to drive the, the consumer success of your product. Quite interesting. Then one of the most controversial points in this whole season is another point by Jack, which has been mentioned so often. The problem is that when you say that the cultivated meat is clean, you're suggesting that the current meat is dirty, which is something they actually kind of liked, <laughs> that, that implication was there. But it's also suggesting that it's unethical. And most consumers don't want to be having a conversation about ethics at the moment they're taking a bite of food. When you bring ethics into the conversation, you force people to deal with cognitive dissonance. By positioning these companies as a threat to the future of the livestock industry, I mean, you know, if that's the industry you're in, why wouldn't you respond? I want to avoid sounding like a broken record, but what we have is this very interesting divide between Jack advocating for, let's say, more of a cautionary approach where you don't really, like, it's not even attacking the animal industry, right? Because it's about pointing out the issues of the animal industry. So he's more pro not addressing that in any major way. Whereas quite a lot of other interview guests said that there are good arguments against this. Jack's argument makes sense in terms of building ties to the existing industry. But then on the other hand, you have the important government funding that needs to take place. You have also overall government support that needs to be established. And that tends to be established for really pointing out what are the issues with what's going on right now. And why would creating cultured meat or promoting cellular agriculture not just be a matter of creating something that's just better? but an urgent necessity that needs to happen right now. And then the other question is whether the incumbents, the established industry, will actually not be confrontative just because we aren't pointing out the issues that they have. Because every major industry that was about to be disrupted has an inherent interest to stop this, even if it makes sense. It is cost intensive to switch to new systems and to give up all of the existing investments. So as Kimberly in episode 13 said, they will likely not run into the sunset happily ever after <laughs> and give up their market share. So another thing Jack said, which I find very interesting is... And the, the thing is that you can't be transparent after you're asked about transparency. You need to be transparent before anybody asks you the question. Mm -hmm. And so I'll give you an example. The, there were people at uh, McDonald's who were trying to convince the, the company to put their ingredients on the web. And they, they just didn't feel like they needed to do it, that it was important. And, but they, eventually they relented and they put all of their ingredients on the website. And nobody visited the website. And so the executive's like, what the heck's going on? You know, we, we did what you asked us to do and nobody's visiting the site. And the response from the comms guys was, yeah, that's great. Because when you ask people, they're just happy knowing it exists. They're happy knowing they could visit that website. 
And so concerns about the ingredients declined just by making something available that nobody ever visited. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in almost no situation is science really relevant. It's always the trust that's relevant. Now, it should be backed by science, but, you know, you know, people, science at the beginning of a conversation just polarizes the audience. Those who agree mm -hmm. with you agree with you more, and those who disagree disagree more. A lot of the brands in the field are very sciencey and science focused. So is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Again, it's probably connected to the target group. Let's look at episode five with Dr. Daniel Jolly, conspiracy researcher. He said, and of course, this field right now with cultured meat is a new field, but it has the kind of key ingredients, arguably, of conspiratorial beliefs to flourish. So there's actually quite a bit of literature that has come out of COVID-19 because it has all the key ingredients, anxiety, the threat, joy, uncertainty, big event, which means that there's been a lot of interest. But I think what we are learning is that it's a challenge and that, of course, people who have these beliefs, they really hold on to them. They, they come their social identity, which means that people are motivated to defend their beliefs and they will engage in dialogue to defend them. So potentially it's thinking about ways that we have a much more productive conversation with someone. It's trying to understand why does that person have those particular beliefs to start with? Yeah, it does. It does. If you put one and one together, the lab-grown Frankenstein meat <laughs> with needles in it is perfectly designed to control you from 5G towers. And quite interesting is that Daniel was pointing out, even though people may not believe in these conspiracies, they still affect their decision-making. So we know with conspiracy theories that once people are exposed to them, they can be very resistant to correction. And also, they can be very influential straight away. They mm. can impact us without us realizing. What I mean by that is research has shown that if, when you're exposed to these, these narratives, it makes you think differently about that event. It would initially make you more skeptical towards that product. It will change your opinion towards it. Daniel also says the average person is unlikely to sit through and read a 20-page risk assessment because not only is that quite dry material for anyone, they're not going to be motivated to read that. Yeah. <laughs> it needs to be a much more accessible, fun, arguably humorous way to get them engaged in the content. So the example I, I mentioned earlier with, with 5G and Vodafone, these adverts were short and they were engaging. They were fun to watch, but they were also informative. They were in essence using humor as a way to educate. So people were therefore engaged to learn about, about this topic. And another quote that I liked is, I think an important part of the discussion is that consumer adoption and consumer acceptance. Oh, wait, that's, that's a quote by me. <laughs> Uh, sorry, huh? <laughs> I started reading that. I'm like, that sounds like me. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so 
one thing that I said in that episode <laughs> is I think an important part of the discussion is that consumer adoption and consumer acceptance is not a linear progression. So let's let's move on. <laughs> episode six is with Nikki Quinn from Aleph Farms and she is a global marketing director. She said, people are going to have differing opinions about this. I think that we all have to get ready for that. That's what's going to happen when we go to mainstream. There's going to be way more blowback coming our way. We all have to sort of huddle together and gather because I think consistency and communication points across companies will be important. That if one company is saying something in one way and another company mm. saying it the other, this inconsistency will break down trust at a really key stage for us as we all go to market. And, and to agree on how to address topics like, is this GMO? Is this non-GMO? What about antibiotics? What about the safety concerns, etc.? I was talking to some PR consultants we work with and they said, you know, if you don't want to be called lab meat and or to be seen as lab meat, you know, maybe don't do interviews from the lab right? <laughs> because that's where the industry is right now. We are in labs right now, y'all. Like, And there's nothing wrong with that. I feel like people talk about the vegan trap. What about the natural trap? I mean, arguing in the terms of what's more natural, I think right now the way we're producing meat isn't natural either. Quite fascinating. So you know that plant-based products have had this, I, I call it Birkenstock flair. <laughs> <laughs> the hippie Birkenstock audience flair, a slightly dusty image that made a lot of people feel like, oh, this is not for me because people like me don't eat this. And this is what Nikki is referring to when she's talking about the vegan trap. Now, what is the natural trap? Like at first, yogurt was something that was made by hand, but as it's grown and scaled, it has moved into what can be described as a more lab or industrial environment. Food on an industrial scale is always not as romantic, but I think that people, they kind of still attach themselves to this naturalness of what it was. So the natural trap is consumers thinking about meat as the more natural option compared to cellular agriculture. And here... We need to think about, do we even want to talk about naturalness at all? So Nikki also opened up the discussion to possibly embrace the non-naturalness of lab-grown meat, <laughs> or even the term lab-grown meat, and maybe to own that as a way to shift the perspective on this. Now let's keep going with episode 7 with Raphael from Formo and Lou Cooperhouse from Blue Nalo. Formo is creating real cheese without cow and Lou and Blue Nalo are creating real fish without fish. So Raphael said, when it comes to ice cream and cheese, which are more, let's say, processed products, consumer acceptance is better than for raw milk which is kind of the steak equivalent of the dairy world. That's quite fascinating, isn't it? So the more something is generally processed, like cheese, the less people worry about the naturalness trap that we just talked about. It's a big difference between analyzing what consumers think and what you yes. should do as a company. I think it's, it's a huge difference because if people tell me, we don't care about technology in food or we don't like it. Then my question also is, why is that? Why don't people care about technology? And then for me, it's a question of, okay, 
have we be- have we done a bad job explaining the advantages of science? Have big corporates been not transparent enough around science? We see ourselves in a position where we want to create the image of people can trust science. Science is a good thing. And that's quite a bold mission right there. And I would actually consider that science itself is neither inherently good or bad. It's more used for certain purposes. It's a it's a tool. But again, this is a discussion of trust. This is something that lots of the tech companies in the past, specifically in agriculture, have not done right, is that they focus, their focus is the technology. Our focus isn't the technology. Our focus is the advantages that the technology will bring to us as a society. And this is what we need to communicate. We don't need animals to produce animal products. I think until 2030, the majority of proteins won't come from animals. So plant-based fermentation based in cell act together will be more than 50% of this market. Wouldn't that be cool? I want this to be right. It would be fantastic if it doesn't. Raphael argues based on exponential development and our human incompetence to understand exponential change and improvement. Lou from Blunalo was uh, talking a lot about labeling and naming. We knew that when we met with the FDA and USDA, we felt very confident that safety is not the ultimate issue here. It's actually labeling. Uh, of course, all the safety, we all need to get through the appropriate process to demonstrate that. But labeling was something that there wasn't a clear solution. So we decided to be very proactive and rather than wait for others to decide and arguably have something that really wasn't a positive name or one that properly conveyed what we're doing, we actually sponsored research by a university professor, Dr. Bill Holman at Rutgers, and he did his own independent research and it was peer reviewed and published in the journal Food Science, where he looked at every name used in media, by companies and commerce in one way or the other. Almost 100 different names were used and actually came up with a methodology to say these are appropriate names. I personally am very offended by the term lab made because this is made in a food processing facility very similar to microbreweries and many other processes. I think that whole logic got started when the first pictures of this product were shown in a Petri dish, frankly, in a lab setting, and it conveyed that situation. But I come out of the food industry and everything starts in a lab, but then it goes to a factory. This is no different. Yes. So that being said, so the term cell-based and cell-cultured as the description, both were shown to be very similar statistically as describing the process, but also very importantly, helping consumers determine that it wasn't conventional farm-raised or wild-caught seafood in our case, but it was something different. Indeed, indeed. Well, no comment from my side. This this says it all. <laughs> then Lou continues to talk about what makes people interested to try cultured seafood. We've actually found that human health, including mercury, was a very significant issue. As we talk consumers, you know, we want to know why. What gets you motivated to try cell cultured seafood? Yes, they're very excited by sustainability, but what really hit home was mercury, microplastics, and environmental pollutants. Mm. These are things that they realize that they are ingesting. And then when we talked to a whole nother population, restaurant operators, we found a whole nother benefit. Uh, unlike terrestrial animals, they told us about lack of consistency in their supply. When they're dealing with seafood, they have so much variability in supply. They don't necessarily trust their suppliers. Overall, it felt like both dairy products and fish products seem to be easier to market. So this is 
part two of the recording and actually the third time that I record this part of the episode because we had some audio glitches in the software twice and the audio just disappeared into the nirvana of the internet. (laughs) So let's move on to Irina Gary from Change Foods a company that is creating fermentation-based dairy products. Irina agreed with Lou that labeling is crucial. How we name this technology, I think, is absolutely critical in order for people to understand it and not be afraid of it. Language matters. Most people don't even read the rest of the article. They read the headline. Irina is definitely less optimistic about the collaboration with the industry. And she says... Maybe they're launching some brands, but by no means are they actively going and disrupting themselves. They're just risk mitigating for a disruption that's coming. And I think that's why you have to separate the bigger industry interests from individual companies. I do think that the interests are so heavily aligned to maintaining the system as is. And again, we've seen this play out. We've seen this with energy transition. We've seen this with tobacco for crying out loud, right? How many decades did it take of denying science and finding doctors to say things that smoking wasn't bad for you and promoting the industry until it was finally so clear and regulated out, right? We're seeing that now with oil and gas, with Shell yesterday being told to cut their emissions. Some of it is too big, too important, too entrenched for the system to regulate itself out of existence. Organizations are just a bunch of people with different, oftentimes conflicting interests who wage their civil wars inside the company. So even though there's part of the company who may be interested in promoting the future and going towards it, it tends to be quite non-lucrative to just throw over all the existing business and the existing investments. One of the ways in which the established industry could try to make it harder for cellular agriculture is by using confusion and funding research, which is focused on issues of cellular agriculture. We want the silver bullet. We want the one ingredient to do it all. And the reality is that it's not going to. And the industry is leveraging that to see doubt, see confusion. And as you said, very rightfully so, the result of confusion is inaction. And that is the most dangerous thing for us. And it's the most beneficial thing for the incumbent industry, because if people keep doing what they're doing, there's no change. Irina actually strongly argues for pointing out the existing issues within animal agriculture. The impetus for change is both the environmental and the health conversations that we talked about. And I think we have to have this conversation, but having it without the solution is unproductive because it just gets people depressed. So it's pairing up the hard conversation with the positive and exciting conversation about the possibility of what we could do in the future. And I think when we combine the two is when we truly create a powerful message. That might be where I disagree with some of your other guests. This idea of just being a nice alternative and not addressing the issues with animal agriculture and not poking holes in that kind of frame. I don't think we can create the level of change that we need to create without having that conversation. I don't think we could move past a niche space unless we kind of open up the greater public consciousness on what 
is the way we do food today doing to our planet and to our health. In episode nine, we cover Amendment 171, featuring Ronja Berthold from the European Vegetarian Union. At that time, Amendment 171 was still pending, and we actually just really weren't sure how it's going to play out. Fortunately, it didn't pass. The legislature would make it very hard for products to be called milk or even use variations like creamy or melts like cheese. Possibly it would have even affected the packaging of dairy alternatives. And Rania gives us quite a bit of background of how this came to be and what the actual interests are. We had since the 1980s already a protection of milk denominations for anything that is not a memory secretion, as they call it within the regulations. So anything that does not come from an animal, basically. At the time, it was argued on the one hand with consumer protection, so people don't get confused. But on the other, it was really about protecting the dairy sector itself. You can still find it in the protocols that it wasn't just about the consumer, but that it was also about the dairy sector and protecting the dairy sector and giving it some privilege. So it wasn't really a secret at the time, you know. In episode 10, you hear from Scott Weathers, policy advisor for the Good Food Institute. On the one hand, we discuss label censorship. So That's also something that Amendment 171 would be categorized as, with a focus on the US. This episode left me surprisingly positive. It seems that there is indeed good progress for the alternative protein field. I mentioned Texas just last night rejected a label censorship attempt. Other states, including several states that have very significant conventional animal agriculture presence, like Kansas or Nebraska have rejected label censorship. Very, very exciting to see that happen. So lots of just really tremendous progress on both legislation and regulation. It's a whole new world. Do we <laughs> need to worry at all about legislature or are we just checking off the boxes like <laughs> it's our grocery shopping cart list? <laughs> no, well, we definitely have to keep our eye on the ball. I've spent many a sleepless night thinking about this. So yeah, the fight is definitely not over. On the other hand, Scott also underlines the importance of public funding. In the US, at the federal level, our budget is written primarily by what we call the Appropriations Committee. And the chair of that committee recently said in public remarks that she would like to see parity between research funding for conventional animal agriculture and for alternative protein. And that's an, an enormous, enormous statement. This is the primary person in the U.S. who's responsible for drafting the, the federal budget, which is extremely large. It's billions and billions of dollars worth of spending, saying that she wants to see a significant increase in funding for alternative protein research, which we think could make tremendous progress for this industry. The government has played such a critical role in accelerating the renewable energy industry and providing research funding that's going to help beneficial industries like the alternative protein industry grow and been critical to, for example, the creation of the internet and GPS and even iPhones. That's what public research funding can help accomplish. If governments don't take this opportunity to lead alternative protein, then it will have a drastic impact on our climate, on job creation. And so I think that's really the biggest threat is inaction. In episode 11, you hear from Charlotte Beltikoff, 
an associate professor in American studies and in food science and technology from UC Davis. I have honestly been quite struck by the lack of engagement with social scientists and food studies scholars like myself. It's a different kind of set of insights that we bring. We are the Department of Unintended Consequences because we understand the history of the food system and of technology. One of the most helpful ideas that she brought to the table is that consumers, or rather how she would call it, the public, is not just concerned with their own benefits. And we see this in the history of GMOs, that people were very much concerned with the broader sociopolitical questions about consolidation in the agricultural sector, about intellectual property rights, about the patenting of seeds, about the impacts farmers around the world. She's also questioning the whole narrative of trying to convince somebody or anybody. There's this ongoing conversation about how does the public understand science? But I like to flip that question around. How do scientists understand the public? Episode 12 features Kimberly Nicholas. Kimberly is a climate researcher, and she drew a lot of great parallels to overall climate change and the environmental movement. Now the tactics of delay have shifted to partly questioning how serious the impacts are, but that's really losing credibility in a world where we've already warmed over one degree and we're already living through serious harms and losses from climate change. Fossil industries are trying to position themselves as a necessary part of the solution. They're trying to claim that they are aligned with climate action and with, for example, the targets of the Paris Agreement, but independent analysis shows that in fact they are not and they don't have serious plans to actually transition away from burning carbon-based fossil fuels, which adds greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and continues warming. Kimberly is also advocating for a more active approach and showcasing that change needs to happen. It's not just a nice to have or an improvement, it is an absolute necessity. I'm getting quite tired of what I view as toxic positivity as a mantra that is sort of enforced without evidence in climate circles. And by that, I mean, there are folks who say we can only talk about the benefits, we can only talk about win-win scenarios. And I have to say that is actually bullshit, both from an emotional point of view, where we know that real harm is being done by the climate crisis today, and from a research point of view, which really clearly demonstrates that what actually makes change happen and makes effective policies is a combination of push and pull factors. So you actually need both carrots and sticks. And there was a recent paper that showed that carrotism, this idea of of only talking about sort of voluntary, particularly market-based attractive options as the only sufficient and necessary form of climate solution is itself a form of delay because it fails to acknowledge entrenched interests and power structures. It fails to acknowledge, as you're pointing out, historical evidence and trends. Thank you so much for listening to this little summary of the season. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope it will make you curious to check out the individual episodes because there's so, so, so much more in it. We really just scratched the surface. I wish that it helped you in reflecting upon the topic of how do we promote alternative proteins specifically connected to cellular agriculture and precision fermentation. This is quite specific, I know. 
and it's also an absolute passion topic of mine so I would love to hear from you I'd love to hear your feedback your ideas what are the things that really sparked your curiosity what are the open questions the open topics that we haven't yet fully covered what are ideas that you have about the industry please reach out to me you can reach me by typing in Marina Schmidt, Schmidt with DT, so S C H M I D T in LinkedIn. And you can also just look for Red to Green on LinkedIn and find me this way. I'm always super, super happy to hear from listeners and to connect. If there's any way that I can support you, help you, connect you with resources of people, also feel free to reach out. There are a lot of people who contribute to Red to Green to make this possible. And I want to take some time to share with you a little bit of the behind the scenes. So you actually see a little bit, or should I say hear a little bit, (laughs) how this is put together and how different people are contributing to making this possible. So first of all, let's start out with Nick Johnson. He is doing a variety of last minute urgent uh, topics, be that doing the transcription or doing industry research. Celeste Gupta is actually the first person to hear any of the interviews and she hears the raw material which tends to be way longer than what you get to hear because we cut it down from let's say if it's like 60 minutes uh, interviews it usually ends up being about 30 to 40 minutes in the end and Celeste has been with Red to Green since the plastic packaging episode summarizing and streamlining the content so it's the most valuable to you. Kaviana Gayaran is doing partnership research and reach out by getting the right eyes and ears onto these topics. Haruka Zakurai is supporting Red to Green by doing industry research and social media. Jesse Horseman is senior producer of the next season on food waste. So we already started, I think two months ago, to work on the concept and the outline for our food waste season so that means many many months uh, before recording the episodes and in september and before they're going to be launched for you to listen sometime in october and you will actually hear jesse's voice soon on the podcast because he will also take over doing some of the interviews Katie collier is our editor and she wrote the 32 page summary of the season that I told you about in the beginning of the episode and she's also supporting with social media and content creation. Also thank you to Nadine Filko who's working with me on a book on the future of the alternative protein industry. She is a professional journalist with whom I'm co-authoring the book and starting to soon pick up the research pace. Ulf Lütke is already supporting us in season five for the future of farming and doing some ground research. We are really working on starting our homework and our preparation super, super early to be able to really put in a lot of effort into making sure we give you a good overview of the industry and a very balanced set of speakers and topics that we cover in each season. In addition, I want to give a thanks and a shout out to our advisors, Patrick Huber, who is Managing Director of Atlantic Food Labs, Fabio Ziemsen, who is CEO of NX Food, and Nikki Quinn, Global Marketing Director of the cultured meat startup Alle Farms.
If you want to get involved as part of the team or as part of our advisory board, feel free to reach out to us. We're definitely right now looking, especially in the area of writers. So if you like to create articles on the topics that we cover, we should definitely talk. Alternatively, we're looking for support in press and communications and social media. There will be quite a bit of a summer break now because we're preparing heavily for the food waste season. But I'm looking forward to hear you again or for you to hear me again in October. That doesn't sound that good. (laughs) I'm looking forward to be back in your ears in October. (laughs) Thank you and until next time. Let's move the food industry. Thank you and until next time. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. Thank you for listening. Our in-depth journalism is made possible by donors, grants and companies supporting us. If you are interested to reach a bright and pretty damn amazing audience of food tech professionals in 70 plus countries, let's talk. Just ping me at change at redtogreen.solutions change at red to green dot solutions until next time let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy from polluting to sustainable from red to green